This is a question and answer session with Joel titled Faith, Practice, and Awakening, recorded November 24th, 2002, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So, who has a question? Yes. I, when you mentioned um, just believing something, like the fingers pointing to the moon, and that would uh, sometimes, if you just go with the belief and say, okay, I believe that, and stop there, what would, what would be the feeling that would go beyond that, that one would be seeking? Well, this is why we call the center the Center for Sacred Sciences. So it's a little bit like a hypothesis or theory in science. You have a theory... It sounds good, it explains you know, certain phenomena and whatever, but you want to go and test it yourself. You want to do an experiment. You want to convince yourself through your own experience that it actually is true. That's sort of the foundational principle of science. So the same thing with mysticism. So we have these teachings about you know, the unity of God and the world or the primacy of consciousness. Uh, who you truly are is not a limited, separate body, mind, but this ultimate, infinite, eternal consciousness, spirit, Buddha, nature, God, whatever a particular tradition calls it. So you might believe that, but your conditioned mind and your conditioned patterns of behavior continue to operate on the basis that you are an isolated individual self. And so then you continue to experience suffering. So the belief itself really won't help you. It might provide you with some comfort, especially in the face of death or something, that, you know, physical death isn't the end or something like that. But really, you want to check out, is what these mystics are saying true? And you want to have this direct realization for yourself. Yes, this is what I am. This is what the whole world really is underneath the appearances. And that's what mystics say, you can know that, not know it intellectually. I mean, you can know it directly in a, such a fundamental way that erases any doubt. Not only does it erase any doubt, in fact, doubt cannot arise about it. That is what ultimately frees us from suffering. Is it always possible to, to, to find that? For every human being. So yes, it is possible. But... <laughs> You have to walk the path yourself. You can't just rely on someone else. This is one of the Buddha's last words. He says, each must work out their liberation for themselves. The Buddhas only point the way. This is why in mysticism, you can't force anybody to do it. I mean, it, it won't work. You have to want to. Just like in religion in general, you really can't force people to believe in their hearts. You know what I mean? You can force them to uh, give outward lip service to some belief, but you really can't make someone believe. Something has to come from within us. You hear the call and there has to be an inner response. Even from the beginning, you hear a teaching and you understand at an intellectual level, but more than that, there's a intuitive understanding, an intuitive sense. Something in me says, yes, this is right. Let me follow this. Let me see where it goes. And, by the way, the more you do that, the less you have to rely on an initial belief in something a teacher says. It's not just all or nothing. It's not like you have to wait until full enlightenment because you get insights along the way. Insights that confirm what the mystics say. And so the more insights you have, the more confidence you have in the path, and less and less you need the belief. You make it your own through your own experience. Is that helpful? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I just wanted to follow that up with a, uh, if you would talk a little bit about uh, belief versus faith. I know that Krishnamurti and uh, Alan Watts talk about it. Like Alan Watts says, uh, belief comes from the root belief to wish. And so you have a, uh, a conception of what you want to be true, mm -hmm. how you want life to turn out versus... Um, falling to earth and saying, what's going on here, and finding out for yourself. I would define the difference this way. Belief is static, and faith is dynamic. Faith the way mystics use it. Faith that uh, mystics rely on has two aspects to it. 
First of all, there's the obvious aspect, just like if you want to study anything, you have to have faith that your teacher knows what they're talking about. So you don't understand yet. So let's say uh, you're going to the U of O and you're going to study Latin and you walk in there and there's all this stuff written on the board. You don't understand it. And your professor there is going to teach you this Latin. Well, in the beginning, you have to have faith that that professor knows Latin. At the end of the course, you're going to have some knowledge of Latin. So you need faith in that sense. But by the end of the course, you don't need the faith anymore. You know. Or you find out that your teacher didn't know what he's talking about. It was a faith and you, know, you leave. So one way or another. Uh, but there is the other aspect, and I think is related to what I was saying before. This, this inner intuition, this recognition that what I'm hearing somehow rings true to me. It's like I don't understand it yet. It's paradoxical. It's this and that. But there's something in here that's speaking to something in me. And so this response is not a strictly rational response. I mean, it's a response that is a response of the heart rather than the mind. And we can use faith in that way as well. And sometimes in the path, that is all you have to go on. Because the path, in some ways, gets less and less rational. And it's very important to say here, it doesn't become irrational. As my teacher, who was a very rational philosopher type, used to say, it is true that enlightenment is not rational, but that does not therefore make it irrational. <laughs> so it transcends the, the, the categories. But there are times when we're on a spiritual path where there is nothing more to go on. I mean, so many of our preconceived ideas have been yanked out from under us. We feel lost and we're floating and we don't know what's going on. I described in my book, it's like walking up a staircase in the dark without a railing. You know, you're kind of feeling your way up. So you need this faith. But this faith is related to intuition. It's not related to somebody has told you something you grew up with. You know, this is what everybody around you believes in. It's something that's coming deep from within. And you can recognize that. You can discriminate and determine that. The wisdom of the heart rather than the wisdom of the mind. So that's the way I would use faith anyway. Yes, in the back there. Um, I was curious about uh, how you work through the process of the tug-of-war between discovering your spiritual nature and the ego latching onto that spiritual nature. <laughs> With difficulty. <laughs> well, first of all, let me say it's different for, for each individual because uh, the ego is different for each individual. Our, our fundamental nature is the same for all of us. That's not what makes us unique. What makes us unique are two things. First of all, in a, in a pure way, we're each in unique uh, manifestation, a form of that formless underlying reality. Just in the same way, uh, two waves on the ocean are both made of water, and there's nothing else in them than the water of the ocean. But each one will be unique. No two waves will be exactly alike, ever. Each wave that ever arises is going to be a little bit different from all the other waves. So in that sense, we're unique. But... Um, even more so, our thinking minds have this tremendous creative power, and so we create these delusions for ourselves, and those delusions can get very unique, you know? So, <laughs> because the thinking mind's very creative. So, we can have all sorts of games the ego, the deluded thinking mind can play. And one of the things that we have to watch for in a spiritual path is the ego sort of seizing the role of spiritual seeker. Very often what happens is that we begin on a spiritual path with a conflict between the old egoic self and what we might call the new spiritual self. It's not really a full self, but this faith, this intuition, this drive to walk a spiritual path. And for a lot of people, the old ego self right away is resistant, doesn't want to do that, doesn't want to give up its old habits. You know, no matter that it's suffering, at least it's starring in its little story. You know, I'm the suffering being here. And uh, it's comfortable with all that, you know. I think actually in the Declaration of Independence, there's a line about how humanity would rather suffer the ills they know than open themselves to ills they don't know. So <laughs> there's a little bit of that going on. And this is often written about in uh, traditions as the, a spiritual combat or a spiritual warfare. But at a certain point... The ego decides it can't win, so it's going to jump on board. See, it's going to usurp this. So now the ego is going to do all these practices and really get behind them and really get good at them. Do you know what I mean? And it's going to identify with that. 
Now, this is a double-edged sword because on one hand, it's great because then you are really interested in your practices. You're willing to put in the time and so forth. But the ego is hearing the teachings from its point of view, which is that if you do these practices, you're going to be free of suffering. You're going to be happy. You're going to be eternal and all that. Well, the ego is never going to do that. But it's practicing with that aim in mind to actually preserve and protect itself. And ultimately, it's only through the experience of walking the path that the ego learns that this is not the case. The ego itself cannot convince itself that it's not the case. It can get very tricky. It can think it's convinced itself that this is not the case. Uh, But fortunately, spiritual practices are set up to self-destruct. If you push them far enough, they themselves will undo that. And also a spiritual teacher can help uh, a lot in that situation. So it brings the whole being, if we like, to a place where uh, you have to surrender. I mean, it's not that the ego is choosing to do this, because that's the one thing the ego can't choose to do. It cannot choose to surrender itself, to let go of itself. As long as it's trying to do that, it is there. In fact, all the ego really is is an activity. It is that activity of holding and grasping. So that activity has to cease. So the ego can't cease it, because if the ego is trying to cease it, then that's the activity that's keeping the ego going. So ultimately, this is the mystery part. This is what is in a lot of traditions described as the grace in the path. That ultimately, it's a matter of grace. You have to do your part. You have to walk the path and do your practices and so forth. Or as the Buddhists would say, it happens spontaneously. It doesn't happen as the result of going through steps of A, B, C, and then you get to D. But you do have to go through A, B, C, you see, and then you get to a place where there is no D. And you're trying to get to D, but you finally can't, so you you give up. I'll say one other thing about this, because um, there are a lot of teachers today who teach that you don't have to bother doing anything on a spiritual path, no practices, you know, just give up now. And I've done talks on this and written articles and stuff, if you want to go see my point of view. But just to say in in, uh, the briefest possible way, there are two things wrong with that. First of all, that is... An instruction directed at the ego. Well, just give up. Well, that's impossible. We cannot just give up. Life can bring us to a certain situation where we just give up. And sometimes people have been brought to that without any prior spiritual practice. But life circumstances brought them to some crisis where there was just nothing more to do. Uh, And the other thing wrong with that is that not only can we not do it, but... We can fool ourselves if the ego takes these teachings and thinks it's given up, you see. It thinks it's not doing any practice, it's not attached to anything anymore, and so forth. So it can be very deceptive. Ramana Maharshi, whom a lot of these people are followers of, said, you know, you do your sadhanas, your practices, until there comes a point where you can't do them anymore. That's very different than choosing not to do them anymore, where the practices exhaust themselves. You cannot do them anymore. Now you're in a really beautiful position. It won't feel that way to you. I mean, it'll feel you're on death's doorstep. But from a teacher's point of view, boy, you're right. That's that blonde. Just a little breeze and it's ready to drop. That's been really hard to be there. Hmm? To go through that, all that. Well, you don't have a choice. See, that's the that's the point. So you don't have to worry about it. As long, yeah, as long as you have a choice, you won't go there. That's why the path has to bring you to a place where there is no more choice. Yes? Why can't you do them anymore at that stage? Because there, there really is nothing to do to begin with. See, our doing is the problem. We are always trying to find happiness. Yeah? I mean, writ large, with our lives... Oh, if I had this career, I'd be happy. If I found my soulmate, I'd be happy. You know, if I could go live in Sedona, I'd be happy. Uh, You know, whatever it is, we'd be happy, right? Or in little ways, you get up in the morning. And if I can have my, I don't know, my bran muffin, I'll be happy. And you go and the bran muffin's got a little mold in it. Oh, I'm not happy. Well, maybe I'll... uh, I'll leave early and I'll stop at my favorite coffee shop and have a nice little scone, you know, and then I'll be happy. I mean, moment to moment to moment throughout the day, the next moment's going to make us happy if we get what we want. So we go through this cycle. Well, sometimes we get what we want, we're happy for a few moments, it doesn't last. Well, we don't get what we want and we suffer. That's karma, you see. That really is what karma is, the law of karma. It's grasping at impermanent things sets you up for suffering, whether it's the little tiny sufferings of 
everyday life or whether it's the great big sufferings, you know, like you're, you're attached to your body, you know, and then when your body starts to go, oh, big time suffering. So whatever is going on here, it's this activity based on a false belief that I am some separate bounded self that has to protect this boundary or maybe expand this boundary and get as much inside the boundary as possible to protect or enhance this boundary and the activity that that sets up trying to do that. It never works in the long run. It's futile. It can't work. That's what a spiritual path ends up showing you. And when you really actually see that it's futile, or when the practices prove to you that it's futile, then that stops. It's not that you've gotten somewhere, it's that you've stopped trying to get somewhere. And then there's the space in which the discovery can be made that this consciousness that is the foundation of all this is already happy. It doesn't need anything to be happy. That is your true nature. That's who you really are. You weren't this little story that the thinking mind created with a little character named I in it that goes and does all these little <laughs> things. You see what I mean? That's an interesting story, but that's not who you truly are. It's just a story. So when all that stops, it has to stop for a moment. It just The whole thing has to stop. The show has to stop. I'll get one other uh, um, cruder analogy. You're in a movie theater. You're watching this movie. You're totally sucked into the movie. You think that the movie's real. That's all you know, you know, all these characters on the screen, uh, yeah, yeah, they're having these problems and that, da, 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 da. And people will tell you it's just a movie, but you don't know that. You know, you say, yeah, okay, that's a lot of abstract philosophy. Here I am, you know, in this world that's unfolding before my very eyes. Now, what happens when the film breaks? You ever been in a movie theater? <laughs> Boom, it breaks. And then you have an opportunity to see my gosh, it's light forms on a screen. It wasn't real. Do you know what I mean? Now, the movie's going to start up again because the guy in the projector is, you know, fixing it and then it starts up. But now you know the nature of what you're seeing. So this is really, if you want to say, again, crudely, where spiritual practices try to, to direct us to this place where for just a moment, everything stops. I mean, literally everything stops. No more thoughts arising, no desire arising, no aversion arising. It can be just a little moment. I mean, uh, it's not a guarantee, by the way, if that moment's there. For a lot of people, it's just sitting in a dark theater and the movie starts again and it's like some funny little discontinuity happened in your life. But uh, <laughs> it's an opportunity, let's put it that way. It's an opportunity. Doesn't it sometimes seem like it's something colossal joke? You know, we're kind of stumbling around and like, oh, didn't have to do that anyway, and kind of laugh at it? Or... One of the most frequent reactions of mystics who have woken up is that this is a huge cosmic joke. But it's not in a vicious sense. It's a joke on me. Do you know what I mean? It's a delightful joke in a way. It's painful getting to that realization. Yes, that's true. But that's the point. Life is painful. <laughs> Whether you get to the realization or not, it's going to be painful. Right? Yeah, I don't like it, but it's <laughs> <laughs> Let's stop just for a minute here. You don't like it, but would you really want to live a painless life? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got a little exercise that anybody here can try. Pick your favorite movie, your very favorite movie. And now go through and start stripping out all the scenes where there's any suffering and see what you end up with in your mind. You can do this as a Gedunken experiment that scientists like to talk about, a mental Gedunken experiment. Gedunken is a thought experiment. You know, you can just go through and see what you end up with. I once did this here with uh, Othello. It's you know, a great Shakespeare play. And uh, we got to a wedding. It was a wedding that went on for three hours between, uh, not Ophelia, what's, what's her name? Desdemona? Yes, right. Oh, oh, you know the play. Okay, see, none of the bad stuff happens. They just meet and get married, and it's a three-hour wedding. You know how interesting that is when your friends show you three hours of video of their wedding. You know, it's... And then even that's suffering. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Even that suffering. 
Somebody had uh, her hand up or, yeah. Um, a couple of um, strung together questions. You're using words, which is a mind process, I believe, to describe why we need to get beyond mind. I guess then the following that is the question earlier, why is it this way that we do create the illusion and call it a life? Uh, the illusion and what? And call it a life. And call it a life. It's right. as though we're all born too young. If, if we are to get there, how is it that it's so natural to not get there? <laughs> Um, let's talk about the first one first, about the use of words to get beyond words. That's, that's a paradox. There's no getting around it and there's no denying it. And, uh, a teacher could just not say anything, but then and no one would know anything, you know? So it's more compassionate to speak, even though it is false in a certain sense. Every teaching in a certain sense falsifies the truth. There are teachings that do not rely on words. In fact, uh, I'm awake. <laughs> now you're supposed to bow to me and leave. <laughs> this is a teaching the Buddha gave, a very famous teaching with a flower. And it doesn't have to be a flower. It can be anything. He stood up and he twirled a flower. I'm just twirling a gong striker. And he was in front of thousands of monks. And one in the very back got up and bowed to him and thanked him and walked away. One out of thousands. So that didn't work. All right. <laughs> you know, if I did this every Sunday morning, <laughs> if I want to retire, I'd do that. This is my teaching. <laughs> I don't want to retire under those circumstances. I want you all to wake up, then I can retire. <laughs> so we use words to get beyond words. That's just the judo of it all. That's all. Um, it's interesting, though, to note that you could look at all of language as a series of instructions, even descriptive language, like to say, oh, it's a beautiful, gorgeous, sunny day. That's to say, envision a beautiful, sunny day. That's what comes to your mind when I say that. In Oregon in the winter, it's a lie, and you can check that out. <laughs> but nevertheless, you know, I've asked you to envision something, and then your experience doesn't match it. So all our language is really a series of instructions. And spiritual teachings themselves can work if we take them as an instruction. And many seekers have woken up because of hearing a teaching that pointed them beyond the teaching. The most famous case I know of, just off the top of my head, is um, Hui Ning, the uh, founder of Zen Buddhism, who was in the marketplace. And he heard somebody reciting the Diamond Sutra. And they got to the point where they said, form is emptiness, emptiness is form, form is not other than emptiness, emptiness is not other than form. And suddenly his mind opened up. Not because he understood that teaching intellectually, you can't understand that teaching intellectually, it's paradoxical, but because his attention went and looked. This happened to me as well. This was the night of my awakening. This little verse that I'd read dozens of times before came back to me. Between waking and sleep, being is revealed. And it wasn't that, oh, I, now I understood what they were talking about. I was there between waking and sleep, and that was just like a pointer. Look, right now, see? The words came, they vanished, and there I was, and sure enough, it's true. So we shouldn't dismiss words as just being something we are stuck with. They can be quite valuable. And you can learn to read teachings and hear teachings in a more profound way than just struggling to understand it intellectually. There's a way of sitting with them and practicing with them. The other question is why? And the only... Uh, kind of answer I could possibly give is a poetic answer, uh, an allegorical answer. And that is, it's like a big game of hide-and-seek. This is what the divine does to amuse itself. Do you know what I mean? 
It creates all these forms, and then it gets lost in these forms, and it goes looking for itself in these forms. And then it finds itself and rejoices. And it's wonderful. I mean, what else would you do if you're the divine and can do anything? I don't know. It's the greatest game in town. And look what an adventure it is to go through, right? I mean, I've had a lot of adventures in my life, wars and revolutions and stuff like that. The spiritual path beats them all, in my estimation. This is really the great adventure. Yeah. Um, just a reflection of that earlier question about ego and the spiritual path. Um, we're all here, or at least I'll speak for myself, I'm here because there's a piece of me that wants not to suffer. And that piece of me, that wanting piece, is going to have to be, I'm going to have to, it's going to have to be done with before the suffering is over. So when you're giving teachings or when a mystic is, you know, standing up and using words, who is their audience? Who, who do you say to yourself that you're dealing with when you give these teachings? I'm playing hide and seek. <laughs> no, I'm serious. So your consciousness itself talking with itself? Sure. It does it in dreams. Doesn't your consciousness talk to itself in dreams? Doesn't it assume characters and interact with them and create wonderful material out of that? There is a term for that in psychology. <laughs> What's the term? Oh, the psychosis. Well, that's no. Only if you don't know what you're doing is it psychosis. See, that's and the I difference. From the outside, it looks that way. Yeah, and you know, uh, psychosis is not too strong a word to use about delusion. Really, it isn't. You know, the communal delusion sort of works out more or less in many ways, whereas an individual psychosis is, is really off the map. But ultimately, it's not that different. Uh, I think communal psychoses tend to be more consistent and individual ones can be uh, extremely fragmented and, and whatnot. So, but in terms of the key factor here, that the person mistakes what's going on for reality, there's no difference. There's no difference. And it's not that what is going on is the problem. It's the mistaking that's the problem. Because we enjoy make-believe. I mean, this is what art is about, you know, plays and movies and television and you know it's natural to us as human beings all cultures do it i mean the time little children they dress up in their parents clothes and play that's not the problem so we lose track of the fact that it is play that it is a divine play the lila of the god is the hindu say. then we are in deep doo-doo did we get uh you have to give up the suffering. I'm not sure where, where you ended I think, up there. Well, I have this tendency to try to put myself up where you are and think, you know, how's Joel, how is it for Joel that when he stands up and gives teachings, given the paradoxical nature of words, and, and what is he looking at when he looks out at this sea of faces who are all aspiring to get where he is, and yet the very aspiration is tripping us up, you know. <laughs> well, I must tell you, sometimes it's quite amusing. I've learned, I've learned uh, to deal with this skillfully. No, that's true. You see, the thing is, there's nothing wrong with the world, just as it is. And I'd be with people, and you know, they'd be talking about things, and and then they'd talk about some horrible problem they're having. Like, uh, you know, I don't know, they uh, can't get to Sedona or something. <laughs> and how much suffering that's causing. And I'd laugh. And they'd look at me. It's very inappropriate. You know, when someone's in pain, you don't laugh. And I began to realize, oh, no, wait a minute. No, wait a minute. The, the suffering, in one hand, it's not real, but it is real. Do you know what I mean? So, and, you know, I've got to tell you something also. In the first few days, or first few weeks, actually, uh, I, never, I didn't feel any compassion particularly to anything. 
And I, it was only until I started interacting with people that I began to feel compassion. It was like elicited, you know what I mean, in the situation. I didn't have to generate compassion, think up compassion. And it's not some big, oh, I'm so compassionate. It's just, here's somebody suffering needlessly. So, on the one hand, it's hysterically funny, but on the other hand, it's also, uh, it evokes compassion. And those two, I know they sound opposite, they're not. I've learned not to laugh, and I've learned to <laughs> hopefully display a little compassion, although even that, I, you know, I'm from New York, and that's hard for us New Yorkers to do that. Our conditioning is like, uh, like a sergeant once told me in the army, he said, uh, you want sympathy? Go look it up in the dictionaries between shit and syphilis. <laughs> Now, wait, I want to point something out. You're laughing. Isn't this hysterically funny? But that's, you know, for a soldier in the army who's got a bruised knee or something, that's a terrible thing to say. But it makes a great story, doesn't it? Suppose that we got that sergeant, we gave him sensitivity training. Well, look what you'd miss. I don't know why I'm in a good mood this morning. Anyway, stop wondering about what's going on in my mind. What's going on in my mind just what's going on in your mind. The only difference is I'm not fooled by it. That's all. There's no other difference. There's no big secret other than that. That's the only secret. There's nothing to aspire to. It's just something to look and see what's going on. You're not going to be happier because you've gotten someplace. You're just going to enjoy situations where you stub your toe and somebody says, you want sympathy, go look up the picture. You'll find it's funny too then. You know, that's all. Okay, somebody else is over here. Was, oh, um, yeah. I was wondering if, a little, if you could talk a little bit more about the, you're like mentioning the break or discontinuity. I'm sorry, talk a little bit. The break? Yeah. Discontinuity that happens? In my experience, in my own personal experience, but then also in my experience reading through the biographies of mystics of all traditions and so forth, if they have enough detail to talk about this, there always seems to be a discontinuous break. It's not a gradual step-by-step progression. In the Buddhist traditions, they talk about sudden realization. Uh, Even Jesus talks about when the Son of Man comes, it'll be like lightning lighting up the sky from one end to the other. I mean, that's, to me, you know, instantly recognized the description of awakening. Then there's tacked on to that a lot of prophecy about, you know, what's going to happen at the end of days, which scholars now think was added on later, but that's a real, you know, gem. So this idea, this sudden illumination, sudden break, suddenly the old uh, way of seeing, perceiving everything is finito, and there's a, a revelation of something new. And it makes perfect logical sense that this must be the case as well. And I can tell you why. Because part of what Gnosis reveals, what enlightenment reveals, is that time itself is imaginary. That this consciousness is timeless. It's eternal. It's not that it goes on and on in time forever. It's that time arises in this consciousness and passes away in this consciousness. And everything we know about time is happening in this consciousness. So, when we are on a spiritual path, we can talk in a relative sense about making progress through time. We, you start on a spiritual path, and you'll see if you're committed to it, a year later, you will have changed. It will have changed you. And a year later, you'll have changed more. And you will be shedding attachments and be less grasping and so forth. And you will become, in that sense, gradually freer. It almost always happens because of little moments of insight that are, you know, like sudden like that. But Ultimately, you cannot get from time to timelessness gradually, because gradually unfolds in time. You see what I mean? So it's a, it's a leap beyond everything that has been known. And it's always a, a question of something coming to a stop. Ramana Maharshi talks about uh, enlightenment happens between two thoughts, when one thought has disappeared, but before the next thought has arisen. My case, between waking and sleep, in a place where there's nothing appearing, you see what I mean? The Kabbalists talk about how in every moment of transformation of any form, the abyss of the divine opens up. But it's so fast, we don't notice it, you see. So is it, I'm kind of a little bit 
confounded about why it is that it seems like with enlightenment, it's like that break happens in something. It's like the consciousness of that continues. But do you see what I'm saying? Like I, I don't really understand why it would, why like that break itself, it just like goes on after that, or like from that point on, it's conscious, even when you're having thoughts or. I mean, uh, well, yes. Like, let's whatever. go back to the example of the movie. You know, there's a break. Yeah. So you see the nature of what is creating this illusion, and then the movie's fixed, and it goes on. Okay. Now, the only difference will be if you have been deluded about your experience. Now you will see. Oh, I'm in a movie. Okay. So the trick is just to recognize the break. Actually, two things are necessary for full realization to happen. One is this break and the recognition that underneath all this is this formless consciousness, this consciousness that isn't a form, that isn't something appearing in the movie. Like the screen is not appearing in the movie. The movie is projected onto the screen. Here the analogy breaks down because the screen is a something, but the consciousness that's being projected on is a no thing. It's not a screen, but given that. Then, oh my gosh, there's this sense, you've seen reality, you've seen the truth, and you certainly have. Then the movie starts again. If you don't recognize that the movie is just light forms of consciousness, there can be a feeling that I'm falling back into delusion. And this happens to a lot of people. In fact, uh, Augustine, St. Augustine, that's one of the greatest descriptions of this. And he writes about it. He says, I didn't have the strength yet to stay there. And the old habits came and they sucked me back and this and that. So the problem is he, he's missed the fact that whatever arises next is itself divine, is a form of the divine. And again, and then again, and again. And whatever is arising is just nothing but a form of this, what you've already seen. So that's why people can have what I call Gnostic flashes. Profound Gnostic flashes. See the truth, but yeah, it's not full enlightenment, full awakening. And that's not the poo-poo Gnostic flashes. I mean, you don't need any more belief. Once you've had a Gnostic flash, that's it for you. You you will never doubt the teachings of the mystics again. And you'll also never doubt that this is the way to go in life. And you'll, one way or another, want to continue in your path, you know. So they are extremely important. But it is possible to see the break and see the screen and not realize that, and this the analogy breaks down here because, I mean, the light is something different from the screen. I don't know if you could imagine. Uh, huh? Like More like waves and ocean now. We yeah. have to switch metaphors. But the wave is nothing but the ocean. It's not different. Right. So if you didn't know waves were all made of the same ocean because they're so violent and it's just you're fixated on the forms this is taking and the ocean went absolutely flat oh my gosh you see it and then the waves start again oh now you understand how the waves are all connected and related and are all just waves of the same ocean so that's maybe a better analogy in that situation anybody else before we yes um another discontinuity thing once in retreat you talked about uh, those moments when um, you forget someone's name or you're saying something and the something just falls away. And I've always considered that, you know, the identification with I, that's an embarrassing moment. Oh, yeah. And, and you were pointing to that as being a really good thing, an opportunity. Would you say something about that? Every moment... Where, for whatever reason, we don't know what to do next is a very precious moment in spiritual practice. Because this is our problem. We, we know what to do next, we think, and we are desperate to know what to do next. And that's what keeps perpetuating the story. And so whatever we do next, it either works or it doesn't work. And then we make a judgment based on that. We do something else. We do something else. And that, you know, this is this activity that's constantly creating this delusion. So if there's a moment where I don't know what to do, that's a moment I'm surrendered. Not by choice. I mean, like you say, it's usually an embarrassed moment. Usually the mind is grasping to get back there. But if you can just let that go in that moment, that can open up into a moment of really true, beautiful surrender where you aren't doing anything anymore because you can't do anything anymore. And so now you see how the show runs. It's all grace. At that moment, you're experiencing confusion. 
That's right. And you know what? In the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, they have five afflicted emotions. Uh, anger, pride, desire, jealousy, and confusion, bewilderment, ignorance. And each of these afflicted emotions, under delusion, causes us suffering. Because we think there's some self in there. When they are liberated, when we are free, each of these is seen to be, or transforms into, it's really seen to be, a divine wisdom. Uh, wisdom energy, they call it. So, uh, pride transforms into the wisdom of equanimity. Desire transforms into the discriminating awareness of compassion. Jealousy transforms into all-accomplishing wisdom. Anger transforms into the wisdom of clarity. These are all aspects of fundamental Buddha nature. What transforms into enlightenment itself? Confusion. Ignorance. Bewilderment. Don't know what to do. The mind won't function. At a loss. You know? So then just letting that go. Just well, when we, when we get there, you know, we, we start fighting it. We're trying to get back to it so we can understand and all that. And what we're not recognizing is that this is a golden opportunity opening up for us. Now, in a certain sense, we can't help that. That's our conditioning to fight it. So it's a little tricky here. I mean, on one hand, I, I can point out to you now, oh, this next time this happens to you, maybe you should try not to fight it so much. Do you know what I mean? This must be the blessing of living past 50. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the blessings of living past 50. Yes, indeed. Because it happens to me more and more. Yes, indeed. Oh, yeah, no, no, I'm serious. Yes, yeah. So... Again, it's very delicate here. Then, what can you do when you're in that situation? Because I do realize when I, you know, have those moments um, of confusion, I, I'm kind of grasping for the story. Like, that's right. Why did I come into this room? That's with, that's exactly what, right. That's what, exactly what am I right. Supposed to be thinking or doing or. That's right. You're grasping for the story. That's just the point. So, in that moment, when you realize that you've got that confusion, then um, to just uh, just what. Well, <laughs> first of all, look right there and notice what's going on. This, this you can do. Even if the grasping is conditioned and you can't let go of the grasping, you can say just what you said. Aha! Oh, look how strong this is. See, the story of I is so strong. When I start to lose it, it's like losing my breath. You know what I mean? I take it for granted, but if I'm suddenly deprived of my breath, oh, I want my breath. You know what I mean? Well, the story of I, so we take it for granted. Thinking. Right. Oh, we just take it for granted. But when we really, really don't know where we are and what to do next, oh my gosh. Yeah, so you kind of so then you're aware right in that moment that you've lost your, your train of thought, your thinking. You've lost your thinking. Yes, you could say you lost your mind. Yeah. Just saying, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you feel like you've lost your mind. So then um, you're aware of that. Uh -huh. Yeah, well see you didn't lose consciousness. No, yeah. so yeah, you just right. lost your mind. Yeah. Well, there's something else to uh, uh, insight you can have. Your, your consciousness does not depend on what your mind is or is not doing. The thoughts or not thoughts in your mind are totally irrelevant to consciousness, you know? Mm -hmm. So, anyway, it's a very interesting moment to be in. And if you have developed mindfulness in your life through meditation and just, through, you know, then these moments can start to become richer for us. Even though we're struggling to get back, there's also an awareness saying, oh, now, wait a minute, this is kind of interesting. What did the Buddha say? Maybe I should just stop here. And maybe that instruction will just work for you at that moment. Or at least you'll start to you know, really see, boy, this story of I is really powerful. I mean, you, you learn about yourself in terms of all this mechanism in moments like that in a way that you can't just normally. You learn directly. You see directly. You feel that conditioning, that grasping, that fear, that, you know. There it is. Well, that's your obstacle. That's what's preventing you from enlightenment. I mean, we don't want to let go of this story. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, I just, um, something that came up I wanted to share when you were talking about the, earlier about the discontinuity or the point. You know, what the difference between, I think you call it Gnostic, Gnosis flash or, you know, full enlightenment that it seems that what happens in many cases is there's this that the going it becoming just a nonsense flash is that there becomes this attachment to the discontinuity itself, ah. as opposed to 
just just seeing that, just accepting whatever form it takes, whether it's discontinuity or or, or full form, and it's it's that's when it comes to its fullness. The other danger in a Gnostic flash, uh, and actually, that's not an other danger, but uh, what happens in part of that I didn't mention is that a Gnostic flash almost always unleashes a tremendous amount of bliss, manifest bliss. I mean, it is so incredible. You've never seen, nothing like this has ever been seen, experienced, and part of seeing it is that this is happiness, this is love, this is all the things that, you know, if you're an adult, you've already given up on, you know, you're going to settle for a lot less in life, you know, if, you, if your car will run and you can get some health insurance, that's good enough. <laughs> so, man, attention focuses on this bliss. Now, in the Hindu tradition, it's very interesting. They talk about there are five coverings of the true self, the Atman. Uh, there's the body, there's prana, like there are subtle energies, there's emotion, there's thinking, thoughts, and bliss, manifest bliss. That's the last covering. And why? Because then everything else is wiped away, but what's left, if you like, of the ego, that little grasping, latches on to this bliss and says, ah, this is it. Now I know who I am. I am this bliss, see? Now this bliss like anything else, is impermanent. So there's been a little deception here. I am this bliss. That's uh, already bad enough. But then the bliss may last weeks, months. It can even last years in some cases. But eventually it's going to pass. And when it starts to pass, then there's, oh my gosh, I'm losing my enlightenment. Oh no, what's going on? And then that activity itself trying to grasp back at the bliss that's now vanishing, sets up the very activity of the grasping and the desire and everything else all over again. So, yes, you're right, but there's a very specific reason why that happens. It's not that we hang on to the discontinuity, it's we're hanging on to the bliss that is uh, exploding here. This bliss is different from the bliss that mystics talk about, the innate bliss of consciousness itself. The innate bliss of consciousness itself is not something that is always manifest. And the best way uh, that I know how to describe it, although it's a poor analogy, is I used to live on the desert down in California, in a little town called Lone Pine. And one fourth of July, some people got together and they were going to have a fireworks display and it was going to be like 20 miles outside of town. So even the little lights from this little town wouldn't interfere with that. I mean, you're out there on the desert, you know, with this vast, beautiful, cloudless sky and these stars and, you know, whatnot. So I thought, this is a great idea. So what a marvelous place to have a fireworks display. And we'll never, you know, have a chance like this again. <clears throat> so we get in our cars towards sunset and we drive out to the desert. And we're sitting around there, pull off the side of the road, you know. And here we are under this, you know, this cosmos, right? <laughs> and they start sending off the fireworks. Well, you know, there's little blips going off somewhere in the horizon. They're totally dwarfed by this, what was there just naturally. Yeah. So manifest bliss, bliss is like that in relation to innate bliss. Innate bliss is just this vast, awesome sky. And it doesn't make you necessarily want to jump up and dance or all that. It's just always there, that vastness, that beauty, that just... Then when you, you can experience manifest bliss, and that's great, but it's going to be like little, you know, piddly fireworks going off. It's not going to be such a big deal in relation to that. So you don't want to focus on manifest bliss. There's far better. Yes. But if you if, if you've experienced manifest bliss, you probably haven't experienced the larger sense of bliss. And so that would seem to be kind of tricky if you're losing that sense of manifest bliss to realize that there is something bigger. Well, this is the problem with the path, you see that well, we're all willing to walk the spiritual path if we really knew what was at the end. Then we wouldn't mind going through these moments of not knowing what's going on, the, you know, the terror of losing the story and all that. Oh, we'd be happy with that. But that's the trick. You have to walk the path first. Then you get to find out. You can't do it the other way around. I compare this to like swimming, you know, when you're a kid. You'd love to get in the pool, but not until you learn how to swim. 
But in point of fact, in order to learn how to swim, you have to get into the pool. So you have to do first, then you know. This is the faith part. Faith not only in the testimony of the teachers, but also somewhere, you know, we know this is true. I mean, you know, we're all born into the world with this seeming, as we grow up, seeming ridiculous dream that we could ever be happy. But where does that come from? How do we know there's such a thing as happiness? I mean, real happiness. How do we know that? Everybody all over the world. What they think is going to make them happy may differ wildly. But there's some intuition here. That... So, on a spiritual path, bliss can be very important. There are experiences of bliss you'll have you've never experienced before in your life, really. And they're very important on a spiritual path. They give you confidence that this path actually can deliver what it you know, says it can deliver. I'm not trying to discourage people from experiencing bliss and enjoying bliss when it's there. I mean, if you start taking a very ascetic attitude towards bliss and say, oh, bliss is arising, I shouldn't be experiencing this, my teacher said this is not the real thing, all you're doing is the opposite of grasping, you're pushing away. True freedom, true detachment is neither grasping nor pushing away. When bliss is there, oh, that's great. When it starts to go, don't start trying to keep it. That's the only trick here. Okay, one more. Yeah. Just a side comment on what you're talking about. Haven't you spoken before about the fact that we're thirsty means there is water? Oh, Rumi. Beautiful. Thank you. Beautiful mm -hmm. line from the great Sufi poet Rumi. Says, um, oh, man of dry lips, the dryness of your lips is proof that water exists. Keep on searching. That's not quite exact. But we get thirsty because there's water. The world is not so designed that people would get thirsty if there was no water. We would not get thirsty. The fact that we get thirsty proves there's water out there. And the same thing is true spiritually. The fact that we are thirsty for God, that we are thirsty for love, that we are thirsty for happiness, is proof that it is there. Somebody said once, our, our hearts were made for love and our minds were made for truth. And that's true. So with that, let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. You're welcome to stay. Check out the library. Until we see you again, peace to you all. Thank you.